try to do some things that are a little different today. Uh, you have a handout. Um, you can use the handout as I go through. I'll tell you, hey, this is something I would circle. This is something I would uh, highlight or underline. Um, but the handout is mainly going to be uh, for an application portion after the message um, that I believe would just maybe benefit you, even if it's only in some small way. It's something that uh, has been very useful uh, to me as I've tried to do ministry and uh, teach people how to read God's Word. Um, it's grown me and my understanding of the Bible as well. Uh, but we'll get to that later. Uh, I said that I have the honor and privilege of preaching this morning, and I really do mean that, because uh, I really do believe it's an honor and privilege to get to handle God's Word and to get to speak to you. Uh, I'm super glad that you're here, because if you're here, then that means you're family to us, um, and there's nothing that we wouldn't do for you. So um, we love you guys, and we're excited that you're here, even though Rob's out. Uh, so Rob asked me to preach because um, he knew he would be out of town. Um, and Rob never cares what I preach about. He's just like, whatever you want, go ahead, man. He just typically doesn't care. He's like, you can finish my sermon. You can do whatever you want. Um, finish his series on Hebrews. And uh, I started reading a couple of different things, and I'd been reading the Psalms for a while. And uh, as I was studying the Psalms, God kind of just kept putting that on my heart, kept putting it on my heart. It's like Psalm 1, Psalm 1 for his people. So uh, I kept going back to that, and I had read a couple other passages and just really felt that he put it on my heart. Uh, so I want to preach on Psalm 1, uh, not only because it's the introductory book to the Psalms, uh, but also because I think it has a lot of wisdom uh, for our lives. It's super, very, very practical. Uh, my hope and my goal is that when you leave here today, you're, you have the tools and you've been equipped to walk more closely with Jesus than you did when you entered. So if we can do that even in some small way, then we've been successful. So I want to give you a little bit of background. The book of the Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms is made up of a bunch of ancient poems and songs um, and prayers from a, a variety of people. Uh, David wrote almost half of the Psalms. Uh, and there's some smaller chunks written by Asaph and his family and Moses and Solomon um, and then some other people and some anonymous authors as well. And then there's the sons of Korah, who uh, are related to Korah, who was Moses' cousin. And he led that rebellion against Moses, and then God was angry, and he opened the earth, and they were all swallowed up. And I always thought that it's pretty funny, like, that's what you want to be known by, is you're the sons of Korah. That one terrible thing that happened to your ancestor, and that's all everybody knew. They want to be known, and they wrote a good number of the Psalms, so I always thought that that was funny. But... The Psalms are a collection of songs and prayers that are so emotional and they're so real. They can really be broken up into two general categories. The first half are way, way, way more depressing. They're called laments, right? And there are some praise psalms sprinkled in there. But typically, they're just brutally honest. You have David doubled over in the fetal position, crying to God, beating his chest, dumping ashes on his head. Why, God, why have you done this to me? What is going on? I don't understand how you could do this to me. What's happening? He's confused and he's angry. They talk about everything that's going wrong, everything that's going wrong in their lives, everything that's going wrong at work, everything that's going wrong in the world, just everything that's awful. They dump it. And they're honest. That's what's great about the Psalms. They're honest. And then they say, God, what are you doing? Like, you see me, and you've made all these wonderful promises to me, so, like, what is going on? And then the second half of the book are praises. And it's really cool that it's structured that way. It's, God did it for a reason. These praise psalms, and there are some laments sprinkled in there as well, but these, praise what God has, these psalms praise what God has done in the past, what he's doing in their lives now, and they also look forward to the future the hope of what they know will happen. You have to remember it's Old Testament, so they're like, oh, we're looking forward to the Messiah who's going to free us from being oppressed, right? Because the Psalms are broken up in this weird way. You've got the beginning of the Psalms that kind of talk about the kingdom and everything's going good, and then everything takes a drastic dive, and then it's, oh, everything's terrible. Now we've been exiled. We miss being in Zion. Lord, we want to be returned to Jerusalem. We want to be returned to your temple. And then it picks back up, and they say, but we have hope. We have hope in what you're going to do. 
we know that it's not over. We know that you're going to bring a better kingdom one day. We know that you're going to send a savior. So the Psalms end with them talking about the Messiah, holding this horn of victory. And it's this beautiful thing that they're looking forward to. So in the middle of this book, it's kind of given us a broad overview of what our lives are like. There's ups and downs, and there's ups and downs, and then you're beaten down. You don't know why things are happening to you. But as a Christian, you can be brutally honest, and you can say, this sucks. God, why is this happening to me? And then we can look forward to Jesus and say, I know that you're good. I know that you died for me. And I know that what's coming next is better than what I'm in right now. So I can continue to trust you, and I can hold fast to you, even if I'm not comfortable, and even if I don't like what's happening right now. And that's why I want to talk about the Psalms. That's what's beautiful about the book. It's just honest. So when we dig in to God's word, and we're walking with God, we start to see walking with God may not be all that it was cracked up to be by some people who told you about God, right? It's painful, and it's costly, but God does not hide that from us, ever. In the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Jesus and Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. That's what he says. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is just being brutally honest. Jesus is not telling him to sin. Jesus wants him to honor his father and his mother. But Jesus is making a point. Jesus is saying that following him has to be the greatest priority. That every other priority takes the back burner to following Jesus. Jesus is first. Everything else is second. And for me, that's, that's the first convicting thing that you're going to see. Jesus comes before work. Jesus comes before your friend group. Jesus comes before what you want to do in your free time. And what's beautiful about it is, if you're putting Jesus first, all the other things are going to be taken care of because you're going to follow God's plan and his will for all of those other aspects of your life. But if Jesus isn't first, then you're just putting those other things on top of God. And that's what we call an idol. So, that's the first thing. He's saying, I'm first, no matter what. And they're saying it won't be easy. He's saying, if people don't want me around, do you really think that they're going to want you around if you are saying that you want to be like me? There's absolutely no reason that they would want you around if you're saying that you're going to be about me and about my business. It's not going to happen, so don't count on it. So, I'll tell you all that just to tell you that. The book of Psalms does not tell us to ignore our pain. It tells us to deal with our pain. It tells us to acknowledge our pain. It tells us to acknowledge our sin. And it walks us through all of these difficult aspects of our lives by showing us how other people cry out to God, like David. Right? So, as we keep reading this, we see how they dealt with this pain. And they deal, they deal with it by looking forward to a future Savior, a Savior who we know is Jesus. So in the middle of our pain and our hurt and our suffering, when we don't understand, we're supposed to be looking forward to Jesus. It's the only thing that makes sense. If you're going to walk through what you're walking through now, there better be something worth it on the other side. And I'm telling you, there is, and it's Jesus. So that's our hope. And that's why I want to look at Psalm 1 this morning. I think that it has a message of hope for us. I think that it's very, very practical. I'm a pretty practical guy. If it's not going to work, it's not going to work well. It's not going to work efficiently. I typically don't care too much about it. Uh, and that's the coaching to me coming out. So I think it has a lot of wisdom and tools necessary for us to be able to cling to hope and to cling to Jesus and to walk with him every day in the middle of a broken world and broken people who are hurting and who are going to hurt you and who are going to hurt each other because they don't know any better, right? So how can you make sure that you are not bleeding out on them and hurting them as you try to follow Jesus, right? So that's what I want to look at. So if you'll look at verse 1 with me, that I've given you so much background, it says, Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So you can say blessed, but we're reading the Psalms, so I think you should say blessed. It just sounds better. It gives it more, you know. So blessed, I'd circle that word. First time I read this, it was like blessed. It's a weird word. If you'll look at how often the word blessed has been used, it's really gone down since the 1800s. It's really taken a dramatic dip. You don't hear many people say, blessed. Blessed are you. Bless your soul. It doesn't really happen. We can bring it back. We can be the church who brings it back. Just letting you know. So, it's a promise. He's starting this off with a promise. He said, blessed is this man who does not do the following three things. Following three things. Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, he's going to continue this. It stretches into verse 2 as well, but he's basically saying, do not do the following three things. So, I think there are two important questions that you can ask when you see this word. What does it actually mean to be blessed, and in what way? Is he actually blessed? So, our English definition is to be made holy or to be consecrated, right? To be set apart is what we would say. But the Hebrew word here that's being used is actually closer to happy. Like, happy is he who does not stand, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, and does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So, That's what it means to be blessed. He's saying it's a happiness issue for one. Saying this is not good for you if you do these three things. Saying I want to make that very, very clear for you. Don't do these three things. And then we'll dive into why, right? That second question is going to be answered later on in verses 2 and 3. And if I forget about it, just yell at me because it's been a long week. So I got Nate to preach. So I could sleep this week because we were coaching football and trying to put our offense in and teaching and being here and also going back to school. So don't let me forget. Okay. When we look at verse 1, and it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We'll see there's a progression. He's saying you have a man walking, then you have a man standing, then you have a man sitting. It's a bad progression. Okay. So, we'll break it down really quick. It says, the wicked. Who are the wicked? The wicked are those who stand against God and the way that he would have us live. It says, blessed is this man who walks not, who does not walk in their counsel. So, he does not practice the ungodly advice that he hears from the people that he's being surrounded by. So, this is any advice that doesn't point people back to God. This is any advice that is opposite of the Torah, Right? which are those Old Testament books that they have, those first five books. So, the difference here is between good and best. He's not just saying, hey, is it okay? He's saying, is this what God wants you to do? If their counsel is not godly, then you should have nothing to do with it. Blessed is the man who does not follow the counsel of the wicked. So, for us, What I would tell you is the advice that you're receiving from others in line with the gospel, in line with God's word, in line with who God has called you to be, the person and the character of Jesus Christ. Are we thinking about what would be pleasing to God? Before we dive super, super deeply into this, I want you to notice something. It doesn't say that this godly man just flees their presence completely. And there's a reason for that. He's meant to be the light. He's meant to be the voice of reason. He's the light in the darkness that shows other people what it looks like to follow God. He shows them what good counsel looks like. He shows them what it looks like to speak life and truth into these situations, right? For me, I'm not trying to bash teachers. I'm a teacher. Uh, The lounge, when I was in college, they said, stay out of the lounge. The lounge is a bad place where people get in a bind because they're talking bad about one another and people get their feelings hurt. Great advice. Every school that I've been to, it seems to have held up so far. Right? Not saying that every teacher does that, 
But what does it look like? Do I just avoid the lounge? Or do I go into the lounge and I try to be an encouraging presence and I try to love those people and I try to be a mediator and I try to be a peace bringer and I try to make peace and I try to love those people and help them through their issues, even if it's messy? What does that look like? What's the best thing to do? What's the best advice? Sometimes you have to be there just to counter the advice of the wicked. That's not good. That's not holy, right? So, being the light in the darkness with our counsel. So he doesn't flee because he's called to love these people, to love God and his truth, and to let it be displayed through him. So for us, we're going to get really practical here. There's a lot of ungodly advice that's given every day. Sometimes it makes us feel justified and affirmed when we receive advice that kind of is just like, oh yeah, you're feeling that way? Oh, this is what you should do. Yeah, you should feel that way. And they'll affirm you. But it actually ends up hurting us more than helping us because it prevents us from letting those relationships be repaired and from developing the community that we're supposed to have with one another, which is a community that God wants us to have where we help one another seek him more and be transformed by him and the power of his gospel so we can walk more closely with Jesus. So that's the entire reason why God says in this first verse, blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked because their counsel is harmful. It is sinful. It is not good. It hurts him and it hurts the other people around him. So he should have nothing to do with it. It's not what he was created to do. So I'm big on examples, so I want to give you some practical one-liners that usually aren't godly advice. Um, And then I'm going to follow them by gospel, what we call gospel truths in Scripture. There are verses that we want to cling to. There are verses that we want to remember, that we want to hold on to. So, and these are popular in middle school. I'm a middle school coach, so bear with me. They hurt you. You don't have to forgive them. It's their fault. How does that measure up to Ephesians 4.32? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, a soft heart, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's that message there. You have to think about how many times God has forgiven you the sinful things that you do every day, the bad thoughts, the harsh words, the malintent, right? The idleness, the idolatry. How many times have you broken God's heart and he says, Jesus' blood covers you, you're good. If you're gonna forgive people, you have to understand that. You have to constantly be pulling that back into your mind. We've broken his heart with our sin. So, number two, Give them what they deserve, or they get what is coming to them. He did it. He's got to deal with it, right? As Rebecca once elegantly put it, we deserve death. She's not wrong. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the point. Do they deserve something terrible? Absolutely, but so do we. We deserve death. We sinned. We messed up. Because God is just, we deserve to die and to be separated from him for all of eternity. That's what we deserve if we're going to play that game. But then there's mercy and there's grace. And Jesus went to the cross for us and died on that cross for us, bled his blood for us, experienced emotional pain, experienced the separation from God, spiritual separation from God, so that we wouldn't have to be separated from God. So yeah, We deserve death, but Jesus gave us something so much better. He gave us an opportunity to not have to experience separation from God. So the desire of our heart should be to extend the same grace to other people. This is my favorite one. Middle school boys coach. Coach, you don't understand. He hit me first. He did it first. Coach, I'm just trying to finish what he started. Buddy. I understand. If anybody understands, it's me. I was there. This one's really popular. It's still popular. It's it's popular with adults. I see it happen all the time. Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. They love it when I quote that. They love it. 
Coach, I have to respect him? He just slapped me in the back of the head. He just necked me. If you don't know what a neck is, they just walk around, they just slap each other in the back of the neck. Uh, Kids are weird. I mean, we were weird. We did it too. So this is what happens. No, honor him. Walk up to him and say that you still love him. And watch what happens to his eyeballs. Watch what happens. That's gospel love. And you'll see kids just say, dude, what's wrong with you? And they'll begin to start to feel bad about themselves because they'll be like, why am I doing this? This had no purpose. This had no point. This was not good. And now I feel like a jerk. And the truth is, hey, they are a jerk. And they deserve death. But we are loving them and trying to extend grace to them and trying to point them to Jesus in the middle of their sin. So, this last one, also really popular in middle school, just blocked. I don't like what you have to say. I'm kicking you out of my life. I'm blocking you. You're gone. See you later. Right? I don't want to hear from you. I'm not going to be around you. You're not going to be in my life anymore. Right? So, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Great book. We're preaching it for youth group because it's so applicable. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So you're praying for everyone, even the people that you disagree with, even the people that you don't like, who have a different political view than you, who don't like the same thing as you, who are your enemy. This For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I have to love First Timothy. What's he saying? He's saying, you do not distance yourself from anyone because you don't like what they have to say. You love them anyways. Jesus didn't like what we had to say to him. Jesus didn't like what Adam and Eve did when they broke from his perfect plan. But then he still killed an animal and clothed them because he loved them. And he said, hey, there's a consequence for what you're doing because I'm a just God. But I'm not done with you. We can't be done with other people. That's not biblical. That's not gracious. So these are all examples of ungodly advice that you hear. Like I hear it all the time being in a work environment. Because for a while I was sheltered. I was just here doing ministry and I was just trying to love people and I was counseling and I was preaching God's word and that's it. And then I got out into the world and I was like, man, this is what you guys are dealing with every day. Okay, got it. Man, I would always be here on Sunday if that's what I was dealing with. Now, that's why. I mean, I'm on staff. I have to be here. But if I wasn't, I'd still be here. We need to be equipped. That's what you're dealing with. You're surrounded by that. That's no joke. You are outnumbered. I hope you know that. If you're going to be outnumbered, you better be strong. You better be like David. Not when he was playing the harp, but when he had both swords, right? So you see these things happening all the time around you. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be wise, and that you shouldn't seek God's wisdom and the Holy Spirit's guidance, Holy Spirit's guidance when people are mistreating you, right? I'm not saying, hey, just put yourself out there and be hurt over and over and over and over again. But I'm saying lean into God. Lean into the truth of the gospel and make sure that you're just not pushing people away immediately. Like, talk to some other people, spend time in, com- in the community that we're trying to build so that you can be equipped, Right, And so that you can get some counsel from other people and see what you need to do and see how you need to be loving people. So that's our culture. I try to give you what our culture says, especially our middle school kids. Um, and then I try to give you the gospel. Like what does the gospel have to say about that? Because our culture, you see this general trend. It's all about me. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to do what's best for me. I've got to protect my feelings, my rights, my wants. I gotta take care of me. The gospel message says it's all about pointing people to Jesus, the one who saved me, right? Who sacrificed his life for me, his body for me, his comfort for me, who stepped down from the kingdom of heaven where he was at God's right hand, 
where he felt loved and felt cared for so that he could come down here and be beaten and be traumatized, basically, by us. Because I tell our kids this all the time, we suck. Like, we suck. It's true. But God loves us anyways. He sacrificed his rights, and he bore my sin. He was verbally and physically abused for me. He was spiritually separated from the person he loved the most for me, so I wouldn't have to be separated from him, so I could have a better relationship with him. He fulfills my greatest desires and tells me to follow him. And that's why I can say no to myself and say yes to him and put others before me because it was modeled for me in Jesus and my heart has never been more filled than when I've realized and experienced that truth and how that is the greatest treasure because it's a treasure that doesn't fade. That's why Jesus says, store your treasures up in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy because nothing is going to destroy God's love for you and the full heart and the peace that you have when you are walking closely with him. And if you're not walking that closely with him and you haven't experienced that, we want to help you experience that. And I hope that by the end of this message, you are beginning to understand that. So, over the past six years um, that I've been a Christian, that I've been studying God's word, I think it's around six, I've been trying to walk with him more and more closely every day. My prayer when I get up in the morning is, God, help me be a joyous man who loves you more today than I loved you yesterday, every day. Some days I get it right and some days I don't, right? Some days I give godly advice and some days I don't. Some days I'm just too quick to speak and I'm not quick enough to listen, right? It happens to us all. None of us are perfect. But no matter what, no matter where, whether I'm giving or receiving advice, the following statement has served me very well. It's this. Is the advice, is this advice going to point me or others back to Jesus and help people see the gospel as the greatest treasure of our lives. If you write that down, and you think about that every day, before something comes out of your mouth, before you tell somebody something, before you give them advice, you ask, is this going to point somebody to Jesus? Or does this have absolutely no eternal value at all? Is it going to point somebody to Jesus, or point somebody away to Jesus? What are they going to see about my life? So, I think that this mindset will help us counsel others. It'll help us counsel each other. It'll help us counsel the wicked, Uh, or just the people who don't believe, right? And what we'll see in verses 2 and 3 later on is that these things are closely tied together and that God's word is meant to guide us like this. So the second thing that we're going to look at here, it says, nor stands in the way of sinners. We'll be quicker with these, I promise. This is the second part of the progression. He's now saying this man stands. And he's not saying he stands in the way of sinners like, oh, I am trying to stop them from sinning, right? He's saying, this man makes sure that he is not like these sinners. He is not doing this. He's not doing what they're doing, okay? And then the third one is, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This last part of verse one, here the man refuses to sit in the seat of scoffers. So here's what's happened. You'd have, you have a man walking and this is like a general association with people who are not believers. Yeah, I'm walking with them. Like when kids are walking to school. I'm walking with him, but he's really not that, my friend, right? And it goes from I'm walking to school with him to, all right, we're standing in the courtyard together. And it goes from we're standing in the courtyard together to, all right, we're sitting at his house, right? That's a good way to explain this. There's a progression here happening, all right? And we're going to dive into this. This part is, because this part is really fascinating. It takes us through basically what it looks like for sin to get into your life and then to cause you to stop running after Jesus the way Paul talks about. So I look at Hebrews 12.1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So there's a great race set before us, right? And 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about how I beat my body. I beat like a boxer, beating the air, right? Every athlete exercises self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He's talking about how hard he's training to follow Jesus. He's trying to follow Jesus with everything in him, right? And in this psalm, what we see is people running after Jesus, running after God in his way. And then what happens? Sin gets in. And they go from a run 
to a walk. They see some other people walking. They're like, oh, it would be nice if I could walk for a minute. And then those people, they just start standing. And they say, oh, I'll stand with them. I'm getting comfortable here. And then they're standing. And then eventually they're sitting and they're watching all these other people run after Jesus and they've completely forgotten why they were ever running in the first place. And this is kind of how sin gets at us. It gets at us through some bad advice, through looking at something we shouldn't look at on the internet and then you end up too deep, right? Through pushing someone away who you really should have made time for, right? And then we end up going deeper and deeper and deeper into these sins, right? So, some of you know what it's like to walk with God, like to passionately walk with God and to say, like, everything I'm doing, I'm trying to do it for you, Jesus. You've been there. You know what that's like. And then some of you also know what it's like to be walking very adamantly, very firmly with God, just chasing after him, and then to mess up and to experience what it's like to lose that peace and to not have that full heart, right? And it's not that God doesn't love you anymore. It's just that you realized, I just did something that wasn't in God's will, and I broke his heart. So I want you to take a minute to think about this. What are some things that have thrown you off course in your chase after God recently? What are some things that are distracting you from your walk with God? It's just something I want you to think about. So, earlier I told you about that second question. In what, in what way is this man blessed? Blessed. I told you to circle that word, right? In what way is he blessed? Verses 2 through 3 give us the answer. These verses are incredible. These are probably some of my favorite verses. Um, maybe, maybe in the whole Bible. So, Verses 2 through 3 give us the answer to why this man is blessed in the first place. The only reason he's able to say no to sin is because of verses 2 and 3. He's found such a great joy in God that all the other stuff doesn't matter. So I don't care about the other stuff. I don't care about fame. I don't care about these people. I don't care about any of these sins that you could throw at me. I have God. My needs are met. My heart is full. So I want to dive into this deeper. Verse 2. There are three things in verse 2. It says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I would underline delight. I would underline meditate. I would underline day and night. These are the three things that I want to point out to you. So, Meditate. Saying, meditate on the law of the Lord. Thinking about all of God's word. Meditation. Biblical meditation is different than what we think of meditation today. When we get to the end of this message and I start talking about biblical meditation and what it looks like for you to meditate, I do not want you to go home and cross your legs and say, ohm. That's not what we're after, right? What I want you to do well, let's talk about Eastern meditation. They say you need to empty your mind. When you've emptied your mind, you'll, re- you'll be enlightened and you'll be filled and you'll realize what you need to be doing. That's Eastern meditation in a nutshell, right? It doesn't work. If you're like me, you're just thinking of all the other things that you could be doing. That's me, 100%. Like I got football stuff to do. I got a seminary class. I got all these chapters to read. I got to watch that lecture. I got papers to write. I got a lot going on. I got to prepare for youth group on Wednesday. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Biblical meditation is different. It's active. You have to take some time to get away, and here's what you're doing. You're filling your mind with the word of God, and you're focusing on truth. You're allowing that truth to then bleed in and sink deeply in to your heart. It's very different than just studying. It's great to study God's word and to understand. It's completely different to meditate on it because that's letting it change you. That's letting God get to your heart. That's being vulnerable with God and saying, God, you want to take that? You don't want me to do that? All right, you know what's best. I don't agree with it, but I trust you because I know that you sent Jesus to die for me. And if you'd send Jesus to die for me at complete cost to yourself, then it has to be better for me than what I'm doing because I really don't know what's good. And that's just the truth. It's letting God's word sink deeply into us and change us. 
The only way to do that is to take time to get in the Word, to spend that time with God. And it's not that you have to read a great deal. We're talking about six verses this morning. We may not even get to all six. We might only get to three. We're talking about three verses. We've been talking for at least 30 minutes. And hopefully you found something that sinks deeply into your life in this time, right? So, biblical meditation is getting alone with God. It involves praying scripture and being open and vulnerable with God. You just have to take some time to get away and be with God and to hold his word in your mind and to think, what does this word say about my life? What does God want me to change? What does he want me to do or stop doing or let him be Lord of, right? So it's completely different. And then he says this, meditate day and night. Now this does not mean that you have to walk around quoting scripture all the time. If you do that, hey, I'll hang out with you still. I don't know if anybody else will, but I'll hang out with you. So, this doesn't mean that you never take a break. Nate had a great example of this Wednesday night. Nate likes to mess with me. He always over-exaggerates. He's telling our youth kids, you're not going to read your Bible for five hours like Dalton does. And I'm like, dude, chill out. That's not what happens all the time. Like some days, maybe. And I didn't start there, so that's not even realistic. So tell him, you might spend 10 minutes in God's Word. You might think about what you read that morning, that night. Well, you just meditated on God's Word. Now, what we would like you to do is read the Word, understand the Word, and then constantly think, God, you just put me in this situation. What does your Word have to say about how I should respond in the middle of this? What does your Word say about how I should be living and how I should respond to this situation. As a coach, I have to do that all the time. As a teacher, as a youth minister, as a son, trying to care for my dad. Um, those things are real. And without God's word, I don't know what to do. I don't have guidance. I have to spend that time with him. And I have to call upon his word to help me remember what I should be doing and what's going to glorify him. And the third one. Delight. Delight in the law of God. So this takes time, right? If God's word is not something that immediately brings you joy and just sends shivers down your spine, that's okay. I tell our youth students it's like a muscle. Some of our kids like to work out, right? They're this big, but they like to work out. I said, dude, it's going to happen. You're going to get big one day, right? It's like a muscle. You have to keep at it. You're not going to love God's word if you never spend any time in it. You might be bored after five minutes, but you found something in that first 30 seconds that you're like, wow, that's God. That's his heart for me. You started to delight in God's word. That's amazing. Don't be upset about that. Don't feel like you have to read for an hour or two hours. Get in the word when you can. Meditate on what you can. Be filled by God's word. Don't let this be the only time that you're filled by God's word. Has anybody seen the movie Groundhog Day? Okay, maybe not. Groundhog Day, it's great. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Bill Murray, cynical TV weatherman. He's a total jerk. I mean, he's an awful human being. He's a weatherman. He's got to go to this town called Puxatawney. He goes to this town... And everybody knows the story of the groundhog, right? Whether he sees a shadow or doesn't see a shadow. After this day, he hates it. He's complaining the whole time. He's telling everybody off. He's throwing things at people. You really need to watch it. And then he gets stuck in that day. And he has to relive the same day every day. And he's just kicking rocks for, for, you know, the first third of the movie. He's just like, God, this sucks. God, this sucks. He's still being terrible, still being terrible. And then something clicks, and he's like, what if I just found joy in something? And he starts helping people, right? He's like, oh, I'm going to do this. He learns to play the piano. He plays the piano for this, like, women's jazz class. He jacks these ladies' car up. They get stuck in the same pothole every day. He changes their tire every day. There's this, another, uh, a weather woman that he likes who's on his crew, and he starts actually learning how to be a gentleman, actually, you know, almost like that Ephesians 5 model that we talk about, husbands love your wives. If you're not a husband, you want to be one, read Ephesians 5, right? Uh, 
And you see him change. You see him change. This is us with God's word. You can hate it the whole time you're reading it. You can force yourself to do it. And you can checklist and checklist and checklist it. It'll suck. You can do that. Or you can say, God, help me get to know you and love you. Let me really be intentional about my time with you, even if it's only for 10 minutes. Let me go deep into your word. That's what you want me to do. That's what you've called me to do. It's the way, one of the only ways that we get to know him, right? It's through his word. So you've got that option. You can be like Bill Murray in the first half of the movie or the second half of the movie. You get to decide. You really need to watch that. Then it'll really click for you. You'll really appreciate that illustration. So as we keep moving on, those are the three things. That's your application portion of the sermon, right? It's very practical. Those are the three things that you want to do. Now I want you to look at verse 3 with me. It says this, about the man. It's a simile. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Check this out. This is amazing. This will grab your heart in a way I think not many things ever will. The reason that he is blessed is because he delights in God. And he says, because you delight in God, not only will you realize that the things of the world, they lose their shine, they lose their sparkle. You don't care about them because they can't compare. They can't hold up to God. He says, but here's also what happens. This is what you're like. You're like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. There's so much here. I don't want to take forever to tell you everything that's here. But I want you to understand this. Why does a tree absorb water? There's only one reason. It's so that it will grow. It has to have it to survive. A tree has to have water to survive. It doesn't matter what kind of tree it is. It has to have water to survive and to flourish and to grow. He's saying, you are a tree. Stop looking for other things because everything that you need is in the living water. Everything that you need is already in God. He's saying, you're looking at all these other things. You're chasing after all these other things. Everything that you need is already in God. Why are you chasing after other things? You're chasing after poison. You're chasing after oil. You pour oil on a tree, it dies. The poison on a tree's root, it dies. You give a tree water, it grows. Saying, what do you need? You need me. Saying, you need me every day. No matter what's going on. No matter what's happening. You need me to get through the difficult times. You need me so that you don't end up following the counsel of the wicked. So that you don't end up in the places that you don't need to be. There's no other reason that a tree absorbs water other than that is all it needs. That's us with Jesus. When we follow Jesus and we lean into him, we realize, I have everything that I need in Jesus. No one else loves you like Jesus does. I'll tell you that right now. No one ever will. No one can. The definition of love is in Jesus. No one will love you unconditionally like that. We are trying to copy Jesus in the way that we love one another, in the way that we love our spouses, in the way that we love our friends, in the way that we love the people outside these doors in our community. We're just trying to be mirrors. We're just trying to be image bearers. So it seems we've found ourselves believing the lies that Satan has sprinkled around for thousands of years, right? We need so many things to be happy, and that if we do something there, should be an immediate return and reward for what we do. It's a poison. It's a lie. It will kill us. The truth is that happy is the man, right? Blessed, happy is the man who realizes that all he needs is met in Jesus. And we sit down and absorb what we need, which is God's word that teaches us about his heart and his gospel. God blesses us by giving us himself. The gift is God. The greatest thing that you'll ever have is a relationship with God, the creator of this world. He gives us exactly what we need. God blesses us by giving us himself, by drawing us into a deeper relationship with him. 
It's not that we seek God so we can make our lives perfect. It's not that we drop a very generous tithe in the tithe box so that we can get something or so that we can win God's favor because it doesn't work like that. We are blessed because we experience relationship with God. He who is the living water satisfies our souls in a way that nothing else ever will. He brings a peace and a joy that surpasses everything else. Before we leave, I have just a couple other things I want to share with you. He says that you will yield fruit in your season. Big point here. You guys who are passionate about discipleship, I'm passionate about discipleship. You guys who are trying to pursue God, and you're like, why is this happening to me? What is going on in my life? I want you to look at Joseph with me for a second. We're not going to pull all the verses up. I'm just going to kind of go back over that story. You remember Joseph. His father loved him. He had the coat of many colors. His brothers hated him. They got rid of him. They sold him off into slavery. And then God puts him in this position with Potiphar, and everything that he touches prospers. Everything that he touches gets better. He's a great example of what us believers should look like. You go into your school, you make it better. You go into your workplace, you make it better, right? And then what happens to him? This wicked woman, Potiphar's wife, tries to seduce him. He says, no, I'm trying to be holy. And then what she do? She lies. And he ends up in prison. Why is this happening to me? It just reminds me of David so much. Oh God, where are you? Why have you departed from me? Where have you gone? Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? What's happening? Why is this happening to me? I've been trying to follow you. God had a reason. He had a plan. He had a purpose. Was his life yielding any fruit? No. Not when he was in prison. What happens? He interprets some dreams. The guy forgets about him who's supposed to go get him released out of prison. And then eventually he remembers him. And where does he end up? He's Pharaoh's right-hand man. He gets a step up again. In time, God uses him and he bears fruit again. And it's not about him being successful. It's not about him bearing fruit. It's about him working for the kingdom And the fruit that he's bearing is for others. It's not for him. So when we talk about discipleship and we talk about trying to live for Jesus and we're so upset about our results, we have to remember, right, just like Joseph, there are dry seasons, man. And while you're healthy and you're planted by the water and you're being filled by God and you're passionately walking with him and you're pouring into people and you're making disciples and they're just not getting it and they're still sinning and when people aren't coming to your events hey, that's okay. We're doing it for God. We're not doing it for us. We're not doing it to be known. We're going to trust God in his timing. And when it's time, we will bear fruit when he says it is time to bear fruit. As long as we remain faithful and planted by him, rooted deeply in him. And in all that he does, he prospers. It's not prosperity gospel. It's everything that I'm doing for God It prospers because I'm doing it for him. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for him and for others. So as we wrap up, I just want to ask you, is your your life looking like this? Is this what you're after? This is what we should be pursuing. And it's okay if you're not pursuing that yet, but that's where we want you to be. We want you to pursue Jesus radically like that. And if you need to talk, please come talk to us after. We would love to talk to you. Our elders, I would love to talk to you. We would love to build that relationship with you and get you plugged in, okay? The last couple things I want to share with you, if you're really passionate about digging into God's Word, a really good book about meditation. It's Praying the Bible uh, by Donald S. Whitney. It's short. It's a quick read. (coughs) Basically, like every three pages is a chapter. If you want to feel like you're just zooming through something, this is it for you. If you really struggle to read, this is it for you. It'll make you feel like you're great at reading, right? If you just struggle to get through books, This is it. The last thing that I want you to look at is just a tool. Shannon told me this a long time ago. He's not here. He said, every musician who writes a great song, he's just stealing from somebody else. He says, they can tell you whatever they want. They just stole something, some small part of that song from someone else, right? I think ministers do that too, right? I mean, there's really nothing new that I can tell you that someone else probably hasn't already preached or said at some point, 
right? I mean, the Bible's been around for a long time. So this pamphlet that I gave you, I stole it from a guy that I really like. His name is Charlie Bailey. I just adapted it, right? Stole it, changed it a little bit for us. This is really cool. I love this. I started studying the Bible like this, and I feel like I'm getting more and more out of it every time I do it. So here's what it is. And it has Crossroads Young Adult Group. That's like our young adult group in there, but don't worry about it. You're all young adults today. So basically all of the verses are spaced out. They're spaced out so that you can interact with them. I tell our students, our youth students, our uh, young adult ministry, take a pen, any color, go through this, finish it, circle what you think is important, write your questions. You'll see on the back, we've got a light bulb. It tells you, hey, this is anything that stands out to you. That God is just like, wow, look at this. It blows your mind. This is something new that I didn't know about God. Write it down. It's got a question mark. Any questions that you have, write them down and talk to people about your questions. Like, come to church and ask us questions. If you come ask me a question and I don't know the answer to it, I will go find it and I will get back to you because I also want to know. Because I am all about you guys. And Rob would do the same and Tim would do the same and all of our elders and deacons, I know that they would do the same. And the last one is app, just like an app on your phone. It's just sort for application. What is God telling you to do? What is he telling you to stop doing? How is he telling you that he wants to change your life and shape your life? As you go through that first time, write those things down. Then get a different colored pen and go through again and do the same thing. And go through until you can't go through anymore. You feel like you've squeezed everything out of that passage that you can. And then go share it with somebody and meet with them. And you'll make disciples. If you're wondering how you can make disciples, there you go. Matthew 28, 19, it's the Great Commission. It calls us to make disciples as we are going. As you are going out the door, make sure you have this in your hand. Read it when you go home. As you leave the door, take this to work. Pray it out for someone else who's interested. You can make disciples. It doesn't matter how much you know. It just matters how much time you're willing to invest with God and to invest in other people. I think about the early church. Paul didn't know that much when he started out. People had to pull him aside and say, Paul, you don't really have the whole gospel, but we would love to help you out. And they helped him out and then look at that guy. He wrote most of our New Testament. So I just want to share that with you guys. If you have any questions about that, I would love to talk to you because we really do love you guys. You guys are part of my family, whether you know it or not. And we care about you that deeply. And we want to help you walk more and more closely with Jesus. So if you have any questions about that, Please come get with me. If you want to hang out after and do that, do it. If you want to take somebody to lunch and do this with them, or just talk to them and get to know them, that's building relationships in order to make disciples. And I haven't made it. I still need to be discipled every day. Everybody needs to be discipled. We won't make it back. We won't make it until Jesus returns and we're glorified. Amen. So let me pray for you guys. Uh, and then Rebecca will close us in worship.